0: The book ends of chapters 24 and 26 so we're going to be in 26 today it is a repetitious chapter so in chapter 24 you have god bringing about a circumstance between david and saul where saul is hunting david and it's the scene in the cave where god presents to david the opportunity to execute saul we really focused in on the idea of compassion and pity and not only compassion and pity, but David has a very specific relationship with who the Lord's anointed is. And when you sit in this word "anointed," this is the Hebrew word for Messiah. It's where we get the Greek word Christ, as we talk about Jesus. So, in the imagery that God has preserved for us, He is pointing our minds and our heights, our, our minds and our hearts to the height that the anointed one of the Lord ought to have in our life, ultimately pointing to his son, Jesus. So we watch David in his pity and compassion on the definition of who is the Lord's anointed in that scene, which is Saul, so he does not kill Saul. But then in the next chapter that we dealt with a few weeks ago in 25, David does not have compassion on the fool and the ball. What is David willing to do? So, Nabal didn't give David what he thought was a just and fair payment for his services, whether they were contracted or not. He asked for payment, and Nabal is rude and says mean things to David, and David gets angry, tells he and all of his men to gird themselves for battle, and they're going to Nabal just to kill Nabal? or to kill all of the men in the Baal's household. So how do, you, how, do you, how do you mesh David's character? In one chapter, he is unwilling to kill a singular man that is hunting him. To kill him. And he says, no. In the very next chapter, he just doesn't get payment. And he's not only willing to kill that man, but to kill every man It's associated with Nabal. That's hard to reconcile. Yeah? And now we're shifting back into another chapter where it's a similar circumstance where David is once again going to preserve the life of the Lord's anointed. Again, there is a definition of of what the Lord's anointed represents in the word of God and in David's life and in his context but at the same time, as we sit in the last chapter, as he is on the hunt to go and kill and the ball, who does the Lord send to intervene into David's life? He sends this woman, Abigail, and seven times as she is speaking to David, she invokes Yahweh's name to snap David out of his flesh and tell him to remember who the lord is who he is in the lord what he is planning and purposing in his heart to do and to prevent him from going down a road which would have led to destruction in david's life and his relationship with god so abigail stands in this gap i told you last week is at the end well whenever this is like four weeks ago that we were in this chapter at the end of chapter 25, we have David not only marrying Abigail, but also taking this other woman, Ahinoam, as, as his wife. So we're dealing with polygamy. Is that the right word? Yes, Ahinoam. So when you look at why is David pursuing polygamy, again, this is part of the culture in its time There's reasons for it, especially in agrarian cultures. There's fleshly justifications associated with it when it comes to leadership and kings and those who have power and the money to be able to pursue these kinds of relationships. In the word of God, it's very clear that he created us to be married to a singular male or female, man and woman, married together is his perfect plan. Um... When you step into what's going on in David's life, we're told at the end of chapter 25 that Saul, his father-in-law, has given David's wife, Michael, to another man. We're going to see later on in David's life where he gets that wife back and all the issues that are going on in that relationship. In this scene where Abigail stands in the gap and just the wise woman that she is and her beauty with the ball passing away, here is an open door for David to propose and marry Abigail. Now, we don't know if he's already married Ahinoam at this point or if he marries Ahinoam second, we have to sit in the ideas of how much of this relationship between David and these women is based on love. I don't know. How much of it's based on politics? I don't know. How much of it's based on economy? I don't know. David is entering into relationships with these women for specific reason in his own mind and in his own heart. Abigail is a, represents a wealthy household through her husband in the region that David is in. So there seems to be a political alliance there. Ahinoam is from a different community and the same thing. It's seen as more as a political relationship. Um, Ahinoam is always mentioned first because she has a son first. Abigail's son is only mentioned a couple of times in the list of wives and never mentioned again in any of the other narratives because the assumption is, is that son died. So Abigail is always listed as the second wife, Ahinoam as the first, and we'll step into those family dynamics in the future. But again, as we sit in the narrative that's going on, where God is giving us a snapshot of what's going on in David's life in relationship to the nation, in relationship to the women that he is bringing into, into essentially his harem and his relationship with Saul. Messy? Big time. Even in our great King David got a messy life and a messy heart. And when he's aimed at the Lord, he does well. When he's not aimed at the Lord, he has some havoc in his life. Alright, chapter 26. We're going to fly through this pretty quick. Again, it's, it's repetitious. Um, we learn through repetition. Not only do we learn through repetition, God brings about similar circumstances in our lives. Even if we pass the test the first time, God may bring the test a second time a third time, a fourth time. I really do think David's character is continuing to be formed by God through through Saul's persecution, for for sure. So, chapter 26. The Ziphites, if you remember these guys from chapter 23, they tattled on David before, before Saul, and here they are doing the same thing again. Now, the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, now, remember, Saul has repented. He told David that he wasn't going to try and kill him anymore. Um, that transformation of, of, of life, of action, uh, there wasn't real transformation. There was just a pause button in Saul's life. And that just, that just preaches to us, let your re- repentance before God be godly repentance, not worldly repentance as Saul continues to image for us. All right, Saul's a Gibeah. Is David not hiding in the hill of Hakaliah opposite Jeshimon? Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped in the wilderness, and he saw... And Saul... Saul, Sorry, skipped a line. And Saul encamped in the hill of of Hakaliah, which is opposite of Jeshimon by the road, but David stayed in the wilderness. And when he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul indeed had come. So David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Now Saul lay within the camp, And the people encamped all around him. Then David answered and said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zariah, brother of Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. A couple of things to pull out here is, again, David's being hunted. David sent out some spies to verify where Saul is. You can tell it's at night, everybody is in the camp, Saul is asleep, and here's David with two men, Ahimelech and Abishai. Ahimelech is, I don't remember off the top of my head if he's mentioned again, we don't know anything about him other than he's identified as a Hittite. A Hittite is, it's an ancient kingdom that we won't get into its history, but Uriah, you're going to run into Uriah the Hittite later on in David's life in the story of Bathsheba. The Hittites are a group of people that are lumped in with the Canaanites and the Parasites and the Jebusites, the people who were living in the land as God is bringing the children of Israel into the promised land. And here is a man of another culture that has aligned himself to David. So remember, we have this group of 600 men, these these guys that are in debt, that are in trouble, that are discontented, that have lined themselves with David through one fashion or another, and Ahimelech, the Hittite, not of any of the tribes of Israel, is one of David's right-hand men. So again... The assumption being that this man is also pursuing a relationship with Yahweh. I hope so. And Abishai, the son of Zariah, we're going to see him multiple times. He is one of David's mighty men listed out. This is a guy that you want next to you in war. We're told of the 30 mighty men of David. There's three top guys that are the top three. Abishai was not part of the top three. He was the first of the next group of three. So Abishai is number four. And he gets this reputation for killing 300 men in a singular battle. Do you want Abishai behind, by your side in war? I can't imagine the brutality of hand-to-hand combat, but this is who Abishai is, brother of Joab. Joab becomes David's general. And he's willing to go down with David. Verse 7. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp with his spear Stuck in the ground by his head. That spear is never far away from Saul. And Abner and the people lay all around him. Then Abishai said to David, David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please, please, David, let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. Let me kill him, David. Do you want to support your general? Here's the enemy. Here's the guy that is not only hunting David, but Abishai also because he is linked to David. Here, Abishai's interpretation is that God has delivered Saul into David's hand. Is that a true interpretation or false interpretation? I think it's true. And once again, God is testing David. David. What are you going to do with the Lord's anointed? What are you going to do with the Lord's Messiah? Church, what are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to throw stones at him? Are you going to seek to pierce him? Are you going to reject him? Are you going to bow down before him? Are you going to submit to him? Again, we have to apply this in our context of who ultimately is defined as the Lord's anointed. But here is a man in David's life Again, sit in his emotion. Saul wants to kill David. Multiple times, David has been able to flee safely because the Lord has given him a deliverance. And once again, David, here's the opportunity to take justice into your own hands and execute the man that the Lord anointed as king over the nation of Israel. And what does David have to say to Abishai? David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, furthermore, this is, I love this statement of faith here. As the Lord lives, as Yahweh lives, Yahweh shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. David just has total open-handed faith. God has not called me and commanded me to raise up my hand and strike the Lord's anointed. If Saul is out of line with the Almighty God who created him and appointed him, let God strike him dead. Or let him live out his days in sin, and when his last numbered day is up, then let him die an old man. Or... Let him die in battle. And ultimately, Saul dies in battle at the end of 1 Samuel. But again, just this open-handed faith and trust in his life circumstances. I'm not going to do what I want to do. What I am going to do is trust in the Lord to be my avenger. Verse 11. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but please take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let us go. So grab that spear, grab the water. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head, and they got away. And no man saw or knew it or awoke, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. Side note here, this, this idea of a deep sleep, it's the same word that is used, uh, the deep sleep that God puts upon Adam before he takes out of Adam's side to create Eve. In Genesis, also Abraham. There's this deep sleep of the Lord that comes upon Abraham where he has this vision. Um. So this imagery, this, this, the deep sleep that is upon Saul and Abner and the rest of the camp, it's not because they stayed up too late. It's specifically God does not want them to wake up, does not want David to get caught in this moment, is being David's deliverer. So again, the, the imagery is God is right there with David in the moment Honoring David for his decision not to execute the Lord's anointed and has a purpose in it. So God is the one who causes this deep sleep to fall on them. Verse 13, David went over the other side and stood on the top of the hill afar off, a great distance being between them. And David called out to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, do you not answer, Abner? So now they're all waking up out of their stupor. They hear this voice calling out to Saul, calling out to Abner. Abner Abner answered and said, Who are you calling out to the king? So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy your lord, the king. The thing that you have done is not good. As the lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see, see where the king's spear is in the jug of water that was by his head. So again, David giving this revelation from a distance, calling out, Abner, you have failed in your duties. Again, he deserves to die for not protecting the king in this moment, even though the sleep came from God. Verse 17, Saul answers, Saul knew David's voice and said, is that your voice, my son David? I'm still, I'm astonished, you know, just in these chapters, how quickly David's attitude can shift in the moment. I stare at myself in the mirror. I am astonished at how quickly I can go from joy to anger to joy, you know, all in a few minutes, right? Isn't it, isn't it astonishing? So here, Saul knows that he is on the hunt for David. He is seeking to execute David's life. And he gets woken up, and he hears David's voice off from afar, knows that David has once again preserved his life. And rather than calling David the son of Jesse, he has this moment of sanity again. Is that your voice? My son, David. In relationship. David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, Why does my Lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done, or what evil is in my hand? Now, therefore, please let the Lord my king, Lord, uh, let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. If, if the Lord has stirred and sided you up against me, let him. Accept an offering for me. So if if God is the one that has stirred up your heart to pursue me in the name of justice, then let God receive an offering, a, a sin offering from my hands. Let me make it right with God and with you, is what David is saying. But if the children of men, if your advisors... If they're the ones that have stirred you up against me, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. I want to pause right here. So I've titled this morning's message Driven. We're going to focus at the end on the positive aspects of what it means to be driven by the Lord and for the Lord in our lives. But I picked up this, this word out of this context because look at what David is saying. There are men in Saul's life that have given them counsel to stir up Saul to go and continue and pursue and execute David. So Saul has his moments of repentance. He has a moment of clarity. He has returned from his actions, right? And now he's got advisors and voices in his life that is telling him to repent from his repentance. Go and get David, stirring them up. But ultimately, what David is saying in their behavior, in your behavior, what you have done to me and to the men and the families who are with me, you have driven us out from the inheritance of God. Now, what is the inheritance of God? We're told through faith in Jesus Christ that we are co-heirs with him. You sit in the Old Testament imagery that God has brought the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes, into the promised land. Where is David's commanded to worship his creator? At the tabernacle. Through very specific sacrifices, through specific seasons, there are direct commands of God that David cannot obey. Because human beings have driven him and his people away from the worship of God. And ultimately, David's putting words into their mouth. But he's saying, your actions, you were telling me to go and serve another God. Which is in direct contrast to God's command. Yes? Bring this into our context. And how many congregations, just, just in your life experience... The different voices that you have heard stand up proclaiming Jesus as Christ, proclaiming to have a relationship with the creator of the heavens and the earth. And how many of those voices do you know that have driven men and women and children away from the worship of God? I sit and I do, I do a lot of reading. I listen to music. We'll watch some, you know, movies and television programs and stuff. And a lot of it's listening with the ear of attempting to hear what the culture is saying, why they're saying it, how they're saying it. Watching something right now where they're, they're mocking the guy as a Jesus freak. That he, he created a virginity pact with his fiance that they're going to remain virgins until they get married. And the plot line, the storyline of this is that young man is being controlling over the young woman, over her sexuality, trying to, you know, because he's a Jesus freak. It's something that the culture is defining what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That you have issues, that your behavior is evil, right? We live in a time where evil is being defined as good and good is being defined as evil. We hear this in music lyrics. We hear this in the movies. We hear this in the news articles that you read. And unfortunately, we also hear it out of pulpits or in Bible studies, and the conversations that people say, I believe in Jesus, yet the words and the behaviors that people are pursuing is driving human beings away from God. What does Jesus do as he enters in the temple? In all four gospels that we are told, when he enters into the temple, there's a scene where he cleanses the temple is the definition. What is he doing? What's the anger that is welled up in Jesus as he enters into a place that is defined to be set apart as a place of worship and prayer for the creator of the heavens and the earth? His emotion, his anger, his zeal is based upon here's a whole group of individuals who are hindering God from being worshiped. They're fleecing the flock they're getting rich off of religion and again in our own like in my in my life you know i said in those words you know jesus tells us woe to an individual who causes a child to be offended to stumble in their relationship with their creator and when i define child i define it as all of humanity woe to me lord please god keep me from offense. I know that I'm going to offend people, you know, in personality and be misunderstood. I get those things. We all have to process through that. But God, keep me from ever hindering or stumbling another human being's relationship with you. I want to encourage Everybody that you allow me to interact with, I want to leave the fragrance of Christ in their life and encourage them to pursue you. And if they think that that fragrance is the fragrance of death, that's on them. Don't let it be on me, Lord. I pray that same thing for each of us as individuals, for us as a congregation, that there would be nothing about us that would ever drive another man or woman from the worship of God. Julie and I had a counseling thing with a couple from another church this week where this group of people within a congregation are being treated as second-class Christians. They're being treated as pawns and as tools, and they just needed somebody to speak to to get it off their chest because they didn't have other safe ears to hear so we're praying for them. You, know, you offer biblical wisdom, but then at the same time, Lord, how do how enable us to love this group of people as you direct us, whether it's just Julie and I, whether it's us as a congregation, Lord, show us what we're supposed to do. And Lord, at the same time, those that are, those that are, that are your kids, that are causing offense to another group of your kids right now, Lord, I'm praying through your spirit that you'd wake them up, that you'd enable them to repent and to turn and to, to, to sit in, uh, to be able to be self aware and sit in the reality of what their behaviors are doing upon this other group. Because in this division that's going on, the group that's, that has that authority and that power, they don't think and they don't know that they're being offensive. They have no they think that they're doing the right thing. They don't know the hindrance that they're causing in, in this other group of people, which in this circumstance is kind of like, here's this group of this section right here. Leave the church, please. That's, that's, don't worship here is what's going on in that context. It's just a, it's a circumstance. in as David is communicating to Saul, what, what the reality of the emotions that he is sitting in That as he is being pursued, he is being chased out of the tribes of Israel. He's being chased out of the land that his God has given to his people. He's being chased out of his tribe. He's being chased away from being able to worship God the way that God has commanded David to worship him. And how he's listening to those words. You were telling me. You were encouraging me. You were forcing me. To go and learn the ways of another culture and another people to go and worship God the way that they do it is what David is communicating. We're going to sit in the next chapter. David goes and he goes and dwells and lives amongst the Philistines. Super weird. Separated from the inheritance. He's keeping his heart and his individual relationship with God without a doubt. But again, in the religious system that he is commanded to follow, he is incapable of doing so because of the behaviors of his brothers in in and through Jacob. Saul, uh, verse 20 says, So now do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea. As as when one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Word imagery there we'll skip skip on because I'm gonna be long-winded. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Again, moment of clarity. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more, because my life was precious, it was it was of worth to you in your eyes this day. Indeed I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly, have strayed exceedingly. I always, in all of these snapshots of sanity in in Saul's life, I really do, my hope is that Saul is in the eternal presence of Yahweh right now. I know that there's many circumstances, and you know, different people have different opinions, Um, but I know the mercy of God, and I hope Saul's I hope he had a moment of true repentance before he took his last breath. Indeed, I have played the fool straight exceedingly. David answered and said, Here's the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness, for his honesty, for his justice. This is a tzedakah in the Hebrew, very central theme in the whole word of God, the righteousness of God and the righteousness that he seeks in us and through us. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, his trustworthiness, his steadfastness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much, Your life was great in my eyes, this day in my eyes. So let my life be valued much, be great in the eyes of the Lord. Let him save me out of all tribulations, all of my needs, all of my distresses. And Saul said to David, may you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. For the remainder of our time, we're just going to focus in on this, this proclamation of Saul over David, where he says, you shall both do great things. As we were going through Acts, we focused on this umbrella theme that God is the one who is, it's, we are a product of his workmanship, It's we are the product of what God has done, what he has made in relationship with him. He commands us to do the works that he has given us to do before the foundation of the world. We are to simply walk in relationship with God, allowing him to make and do according to his plans and purposes in our life. This whole idea that David will do great things, it's the Old Testament Hebrew word for the exact same New Testament idea. And the, uh, the do great things, it's, it's emphasis, it's repetition, just like chapter 24 and 26 are repetitious in, in their theme, in what God has to communicate to us. Here are these two words. It's the same word repeated, like Jesus saying, truly, truly, verily, verily. It's causing attention. David, you will do great things. And not only that, but you will prevail. You will endure in, in God and in your relationship with him. Now the question is, how? And this is where we're going to sit in the idea of like a New Year's resolution. What are your goals for this year? What are your plans? As we sit in, you know, I, I titled this morning's message Driven because picking up this word that David had an external source driving him away from the Lord, right? You sit with Saul in the book of Acts, Paul in the book of Acts, we are told that Jesus has a goad, a sharp stick in Paul's back figuratively. And the idea is that as Saul is being exposed to who Jesus Christ is, that he is kicking against what, who Jesus is, what it is that Jesus has done, and what Jesus wants Paul to do in his life. He's kicking against those goads. He's being driven in a specific direction by God. Now, Every single one of us. God is sovereign over our lives. And according to his will, he is driving you in a direction. He is leading you in your circumstances, whether you define them as good, bad, or indifferent. And there is an aspect for each one of us where we have a choice to submit to his driving of us and at the same time creating us a new heart that is driven towards him, right? Right? So is we're going to sit in this the idea of what are and again you can google this and go and go produce your own list and you know what are the seven effective habits of whatever right what are the and again I I googled what are what are the habits of people that we define in our culture as being driven they, they have an energy. They have a passion. There is a definition of success culturally in their lives. Now, we're going to define all of these things from a biblical perspective. So, I don't know where you are in your own personality. I have a high level of energy, I have a, a very driven and can be a, uh, um, an aggressive personality that I need to have tempered by the Lord. But for me personally, I'm also a very stupid man and forgetful man. I need lists. I need, I need routine. I am so thankful to be in this building on this Sunday morning, worshiping the Lord in what I would define as a normal day, a normal Sunday. Because we've had a few Sundays that haven't been normal. We've had a couple of guests, my daughter got married. Last Sunday was Christmas, so we did it on Christmas Eve. That's all fine, that's all good, but it's outside of my normal. So like coming back into Sunday this morning, it's a reset button for me. It's comfortable for me. I need structure. I need to make plans. I need to make goals. In my work outside of here, I know exactly what I'm gonna be doing for the next couple of months. I'm engaged in a project that's gonna last a few years, so I can, pro- I can forecast a plan in regards to my job for a few years, big picture. And over you know a couple of months, I can get that down to the nitty gritty, knowing that there's going to be a lot of interruptions. Right? What's your plans in your job? What's your plans in your household? Married couples, what are your what are your plans and goals for your marriage in 2023? Singles, what are your plans to keep your integrity in your singleness to the Lord as you trust Him to bring the right man or woman into your life? What are your goals? amber i asked your daughter i said everly what's your, what are your goals for 2023 well, i don't know <laughs> it's the right answer for an 11 year old i'm 46 and if you ask me what my goals are for the year i can list out a whole bunch for you and i am waiting in prayer right now for god to define a whole bunch of others we had a very specific year in 2022 those things that we set out to do those big goals as a household we did them and we did them well and the lord and i praise god for it there were a whole bunch of things that i didn't plan i had a whole bunch of face plans i had a whole bunch of transformation and growth last year but it's because the Lord keeps me on an intentional path in driving me forward and creating a driven heart in me, even when I really like to be lazy. So in all of your categories of plans, here are some major ideas when it comes to habits that we ought to seek the Lord for, for in our lives. First ones to be internally motivated. Again, this is this... Uh, That the Lord would give us a new heart, that the heart that he has given to us would be what is influencing the thoughts of our head. Um, Not only being just, uh, this isn't having your own personal source of a willpower, but looking for the Lord to be within, to motivate us and direct us. Out of these lists, there was a common theme that a driven, a successfully driven individual does not judge, not bog down with your opinions of other people's behaviors and actions but as you're observing other people on the outside, their successes and their failures, that you're objectively judging those things. But Jesus tells us not to be consumed with the judgment of other individuals, but to have a discerning life, to ignore other people's definitions. As as we're observing the life of other people, that we would have a joy in their success. A lot of the lists had the whole idea of being humble and having gratitude and how those are connected. A driven individual is not a pessimist, but an optimist in the sense what's the upside? We're gonna have all kinds of changes gonna come across your life where a fleshly response, it's really easy to be irritated with change, irritated with the circumstance. But that optimistic personality is, what is what's the opportunity, what's possible in this circumstance. I don't wanna be limited with barriers, or barriers in my own mind or barriers that somebody else has given to me. But Lord, remove the barriers out of what you wanna do in my life in this circumstance. So being optimistic. A driven individual is authentic. Whole idea of integrity. A driven individual is pushed beyond comfort. How many of you like to be comfortable? How many of you like to be uncomfortable? There's some of it. I I like challenge. I want to be challenged. Because I've realized that's where I grow. If I'm comfortable, if I'm at ease, I'm drifting right back to my flesh. If the Lord is putting me in a position that makes me kind of... I'm not comfortable with this. I'm not secure in myself in this. I don't know what to do here. It presses me into dependence on him. So pushed beyond comfort that you are making risk in your life. Again, not risk in being stupid, but you are taking great risk in faith in your relationship with God. Driven individuals are learners. The whole definition of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are a life long learner. And being a learner means that you read a lot. Put all your other reading down before you read this document. And I'm talking to myself. Put my news articles down, my other books down, the texts that people send me and say, hey, read this. Read this document as a learner, as a disciple. Whatever plan and goal that he gives to you to be, uh, to pursue in that. A driven individual knows what they want. Do you know what you want? Do you know what your goal is? My goal, day in and day out, is to know my creator. And in that knowledge of him and making him known, that's going to lead me in every other aspect of my life, whether it's relationships, family relationship, whatever that looks like, No what you want and again there's there's big picture goals in life you know you can throw this and what what's you, what's your exercise goals what's your job goals what's your education goals what's your relationship goals and in that knowing what your goals are your values defining why you're doing what you're doing the whole idea of tenacity don't give up if you know that god has given you a direction in your life Be tenacious. The road ahead in obedience to God is a difficult uphill road. It's meant to be. Don't give up. The individual who gives up, what happens? That's when you tumble back down the hill. That's backsliding. That's turning away. That's This is too hard. The goal is not worth it. Be tenacious in your relationship. Don't play the blame game. Don't be always focusing on here's a negative aspect. Here's something that's gone wrong in your life and here's all the list of reasons why. Don't sit in that heart and that mind. Invest in yourself. And again, this is not in your flesh. But know what your limits are. I'm 46. I'm coming up on 47. I used to be able to go, 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 go from morning till night. I can't do that anymore. I wear out. I'm getting old. So I got to know what my limits are, right? I got to know how to recharge. If I go, 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 go until I'm exhausted and leave nothing left, ultimately I'm doing more harm than good in my life. But no. How to take care of yourself in your relationship with God. Surround yourself with like-minded peers. Do you need help? Do you need advice? I do. The older I get, the more I realize I can't do it all. The pride of youth, you think you can do it all. Surround yourself with like-minded brothers and sisters. Then when you need help in your life, you know who to call. When you need advice, godly counsel, you know who to call. Feedback. Have self-awareness, have a, a dedicated prayer and just time in your life where you are looking to the Lord to give you feedback in the sense of, Lord, how am I doing? Is the goal that you gave me, is that still the goal? Is the goal that I think that you gave me really not a goal that you gave me and I don't need to be doing this and it needs to go away? Give yourself those milestones and those goals. How are you looking to the Lord for feedback in your life as you make plans and purposes, having self-awareness? Are you afraid to fail? Are you afraid of making mistakes? I hate making mistakes. I hate doing something a second time. It Instantly, that me in my flesh, I am instantly agitated and instantly irritated. I have to submit my mind and my heart to the Lord in all of those circumstances. I don't like to fail the Lord. I don't like to fail other people. I don't like to make mistakes. It's not a pride thing with me. It's I want to do well. I want to love well. I want to do what jobs have been given to me because I don't like costing other people. But sometimes I just have to get over myself, learn from my mistakes, learn when to ask for help as needed. Learned in Salt Lake, my pastor, all the time, he'd say, uh, uh, have joy in the journey. I am learning as I age to slow down and smell the roses. The work of your life is always undone. Anybody have any gaps in their life? Anybody have any holes in their wall, in their fortress, things you don't like, things that you know that are broken down, things that you know that need to be built, but you don't have the time to get to all of it today? The whole idea that Rome was not built in a day, that whole mentality, I tell myself, and this is something that I've really learned over the past couple of years, and I'm still in the process of learning, Blake, slow down. I'm notorious for going until I'm exhausted and then leaving a mess behind me. And I'm learning to slow down, do it right the first time, just that whole mentality. But having joy in the journey, in my relationships, where I am in life, the circumstances that God has brought me into, here's my life. I am choosing to have joy in the Lord because the joy of the Lord is my strength. And I believe that he's sovereign over my life, so whatever's going on today, Lord, I will commit to choose to have joy in you as I process through whatever I'm going through. Last one, a driven personality, just say no. I hope that you tell yourself no all the time. And I pray that the Lord will give you the wisdom that you need to say no to the requests that other people place upon you. I'm, I, I really easily say yes because I like to help. I like, I like to be helpful. I take on things that I, I ought not to take on to myself because I like to be helpful. I don't want it to cost somebody else. But again, it's, it's a It's a team effort. There are many things that I have to look at myself and I have to say, Blake, no. There are other requests that come onto my life where I have to say, I can't do that. I don't have the time. It's not what the Lord's calling me to do. And God's giving me the power to say no as I pursue him and I'm being driven by him. All right, worship team, come on up here. Lord, I do ask that through your Holy Spirit that you'd be speaking to each one of us as we begin this new year. Lord, I know that every day is a new day. Your mercies are new every single day. Lord, but I also know that you've you placed in my life, throughout my life, goals, targets, You tell me what to aim at in small things and in big things in life. You give me goals for the day. You give me goals for the week. You give me plans and purposes and ideas that I'm thinking about for the future, but I still need more information. Lord, for every single one of us, I'm asking that this upcoming year would be a year of transformation into the image of your son for all of us. Lord, that it wouldn't be a year of slow growth, but it would be a year of pedal to the metal energy and zeal and passion to know you. Lord, for me, enable me. Give me the time and the intention to be with you in your word, to be with you in prayer. To be with you in worship, Lord, privately. Just me and just you. And I pray that for each individual, Lord. As a congregation, Lord, I'm asking that you would give all of us the vision corporately together. Lord, what what does it look like? What do you want the men of this congregation to focus on? What do you want the women to focus on? The teens, Lord, the kids. How do you want us to reach out, giving us those opportunities to proclaim the gospel, to bring your justice and your righteousness into the lives of the poor and the needy? Lord, what do you enable us to proclaim the gospel to those who are totally unclothed from your righteousness that are living in darkness and pain and fear and misery and the consequence of sin, Lord, use us. Give us those steps. Give us the goals and the purpose and the strategy, Lord, that comes from you and you alone, day in and day out as a congregation. We submit ourselves to you. Let us image you, let us glorify you, let us love you. Give to us relationships with one another, Lord, that are true, that are holy, that are good, that are kind, that are compassionate. Lord, may you use my brothers and sisters to drive me forward in you. May you use me to drive them forward in you. Lord, let us be free from all other definitions and voices of the word and the flesh and the enemy, Lord. But let us have and know and abide in your truth and in your person, in your power, in your glory. Save us, deliver us, provide for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.